like what we do here at Clever, please consider supporting the show. To make a one-time donation, click the link in the episode description. Thank you. Hello there. This message is coming to you from the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, a collection of fascinating conversations with leading historians, giving you the lowdown on history's biggest characters, hidden stories and greatest adventures. Speaking of great adventures, this week, the History Extra podcast is brought to you by Booking.com. Whether you're looking for a culture-filled city break, a local getaway or a far-flung adventure, you can save at least 30% with Booking.com's Black Friday deals. These deals are for a limited time only, so you'll need to book before 1st of December to make the most of them. But the good news is that you'll have the flexibility to travel any time in 2021. Head to booking.com forward slash Black Friday to book your next big adventure. Support for Clever comes from Master and Dynamic. We know you love great design and care about quality audio. So we know you will love Master and Dynamic's headphones and earphones. Brilliant sound and design motivates everything they do. So Master and Dynamic products are the perfect gift for the music and design obsessed alike. And after you see the craftsmanship and premium materials, we know you'll want to get a pair for yourself too. Whether you're looking for luxurious and comfortable over-ear headphones, portable and power-packed true wireless earphones, or an immersive wireless speaker, Master and Dynamic has what you need to upgrade your listening experience. Hear your favorite podcast, clever, obviously, and your favorite songs in a whole new way. Visit masterdynamic.com and use the code CLEVER for 10% off your new pair of headphones. Terms and conditions apply. That's masterdynamic.com. Happy New Year, everyone. Amy and I are taking some time off for the holidays, so we're rebroadcasting some hits from the archives. We asked you on social media to tell us your favorite interview, and the winner is Marcel Wanders. Please enjoy this repeat, and we'll be back soon with a brand new episode. So I went to that school after nine months. I was completely hooked. I thought, this is my life. This is what I'm going to do. This is amazing. And then they kicked me out of school. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie. I'm Amy, and this is Clever. Today, we are talking to the one and only Marcel Wanders. He's a rock star of design known the world over for infusing his work with irreverent humor, poetry, and romance. Work which spans the spectrum from in-flight tableware to cosmetics packaging to high-end hospitality interiors. His dreamlike furniture and lighting is unmistakable, from the renowned knotted chair to the curvaceous tulip chair or the curious snotty vase. Based in Amsterdam, he's the head of his namesake design studio, which does work for private clients and premium brands such as Capolini, Alessi, Bassaza, Floss, Louis Vuitton, Swarovski, Moy, and many others. He's rich on personality and intrigue. Let's talk to Marcel. Here's Marcel Wanders on a table in one of the meeting rooms of my studio in Amsterdam, looking to the screen with two beautiful girls. And I am designer, I'm art director, 
And I lead a team of 50 people here in Amsterdam who every day work their butt off on interior design and product design. I'm art director of Moy, which is a company that works with designers around the world to create iconic furniture and lighting. I love design because it's a possibility for creators to do something that really reaches people. The intimacy of product design and the intimacy of interiors is so beautiful and so overwhelming sometimes that I really feel that I can do important stuff. I can really take people on a journey. I can give them something that makes them feel different about themselves. To have that feeling that you really do something that makes people's imagination go or makes them feel something unique about themselves or makes them able to step into an unforeseen beautiful future. To be part of that journey of people around the world is something amazing. It's something that keeps me busy since the last 25 years. Well, let's rewind back further than 25 years. Oh. Let's rewind all the way back. All the way back to young Marcel. (laughs) Young Marcel. Paint the picture of your childhood for us. Where were you born? What was your family dynamic like? What kind of kid were you? I was the middle kid of five. And mom and dad, they had a store. And so if stuff broke down, which always happens in the store, of course, then I got it and I took a screwdriver or a hammer and I took it apart And I was always interested in looking at things and just investigating things and putting it together again. I was always studying these things. I had a bike. I was always, you know, making crazy shit with my bike, you know, making crazy steering wheels, making my bike run backwards if I was pedaling forwards, (laughs) repairing bikes with a rope for two days, but it worked and, you know, stuff like that. And on top of that, I had my own little workshop. I loved making gifts for people. Basically, it started, of course, that, you know, I made stuff and I gave it to someone. And that was always like, uh, yeah, positive feedback. Everybody loved me. So, <laughs> so let's do that more, right? Of course. What kind of gifts would you make? I would glue a piece of crystal to a piece of wood and just paint it with green and yellow. And then, you know, pack it in a blue paper with a ribbon, whatever. It was nothing special, I think, but, you know, I made things. I love knowing that crystals came into your life, though, from a very early age. very early, very (laughs) early. Basically, uh, if stuff breaks, you get crystals, right? It's uh, it's how it goes. (laughs) I found things, and I put them together. Maybe I painted a face on it. I don't know. But I was making things. I learned a few important things when making things and giving them to people. That still, you know, is really what gives me pleasure today. And were your parents supportive of you tinkering around and and making your bike (laughs) go backwards when you pedaled forward? Yeah, I mean... (laughs) Was that something that was supported and celebrated in your household? Yeah, I mean, my my parents loved that, you know, I could keep myself busy, let's say it that way. (laughs) Because it made it easy for them to spend a lot of time with the other four. No, I had my own space in the attic, uh, a little room with all my stuff, and I just had a lot of fun there. My my father and mother, I mean, there's no creativity runs through the veins of my family, but, you know, they were super happy. I like to draw, I like to make things, and they were always supportive of it. Let's move into adolescence because adolescence is a time where some kids feel like very angsty or they feel like they really need to express themselves, rebel against their parents. What kind of teenager were you? 
I was extremely rebellious. <laughs> <laughs> Not surprised. I had no choice also. My parents were yeah, wonderful people, but super old-fashioned and... I was going to change the world, so that was not easy. And and so obviously I had to fight a lot, and not only I think at home, but you know also in other things. I had a, my own band. I played the bass guitar and I sang, and we were doing rock and roll, and we we're doing all kinds yeah. of crazy shit. And then you live in Amsterdam, so you know, there's all this stuff that you have to try, of course. So altogether, <laughs> it was a, a bouncy ride. But I think I had a good upbringing. So at some point, things turn out for the better. You have to experiment. You have to do all these things to become yourselves, right? It's easy to be a child of your parents. But then at some point, you have to also become yourself. And that doesn't automatically fly. That comes with pain. That comes with experiments. And with a lot of fun also, of course. At what point did you discover art or design as something that you really wanted to to get into and go to college to study? As I think 15, 16 or so. And I wanted to do something creative. I always kind of knew that that was something I wanted, but you know, design, maybe it did exist. I had no idea of it. And someone told me about landscape architecture and I had my own plant corner in the house and I was putting stuff together and gluing plants together and you know, making weird combinations. And that was nice. And so I went to this school for a day to check it out and then at the end of the day i wasn't so excited was, you know, everybody was wearing green boots all day i'm like i'm not gonna wear green boots all my life that's not me so <laughs> then i i decided that's not me so then for two years i studied some other stuff and then someone told me there's something like design which you know i had no idea of and you know quite a while ago design was not ubiquitously present as it became later but you know to make a toaster and maybe a vacuum cleaner, you know, sounded like an amazing thing. So I went to that school after nine months. I was completely hooked. I thought, this is my life. This is what I'm going to do. This is amazing. And then they kicked me out of school. Oh, no. What happened? What? <laughs> yeah, no talent. Uh, yeah, probably no talent. Wait. I did interviews with the, the teachers who kicked me out later also, just to frustrate them a little bit. <laughs> but, but also to get more clarity, because, of course, people, they try to do their best for me also. But, I mean, the school back then, it was a very, like, Bauhaus-oriented, you know, bit classical design school like most schools probably all schools in those days were and i was you know experimenting i was trying stuff out and i was just not following maybe the rules so much i was just mm. trying to make them or try to do something different because i thought that was so cool about design that you would do something in a different way and not in the same way and so yeah basically my attitude to experimentation and tremendous passion that i have in everything that i do was a bit challenging for the teachers, I think. And so I tried to find another school that would want to have me, which is not so easy. <laughs> did that feel like a rejection or did that feel like an affirmation of your pioneering, rebellious, groundbreaking spirit? It was awful. I think I was 19 years old. Not the age that you want to cry in the corner of your school, but I did. I was, I was no. devastated. I'm like, this is what I want to do, and this is the school I have to be. And, I, and they, it's my first huge, big failure. It's like I was devastated, really devastated. How did you recover from that? 
unfortunately, you know, that became anger, which is a very positive, uh, <laughs> positive <laughs> energy if you want to get something done. It's a fiery fuel. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I went to a school in Maastricht that wanted to have me, which is really not the best school, but you know, they wanted to have me. And then the year after I started studying also on another school. So I did one day school, which is more about jewelry and another school that was really about industrial design, but that was in the evenings and the weekends. So I did two schools. And then at the end, I stopped with these two and I, I went to another school, which is an R&M. You know, by then my, my luck had turned. Uh, I started to understand what design was. I won a few design prizes already. My work was exhibited in important exhibitions while I was in school. Uh, some products were in production. The Olympic Games would come to Amsterdam. So there was a question who could design the prizes for the Olympic Games. And so I thought it was cool. At the end, there was like 76 students who brought their work to the jury. And out of the 76, 66 were from design school, the school that I was kicked out of. And then there oh. was me. And uh, so these 66 kids all had been working together with the teachers for three months, whatever, to do all this. And I had done my proposal just in my evening hours, because basically uh, my school didn't support this whole idea. And then I won. <laughs> I won. Out of Vindication. Right. And I remember to the day that, you know, I was working so hard and I was pushing so hard and did like, there was nothing I didn't study. There was no moment that I didn't think of all the big players and all the thoughts I could think of. But that was like, suddenly I felt I'm done. I'm accomplished. I'm ready for two weeks. <laughs> I did at least nothing, nothing. There's nothing, nothing. And then of course, I started to move ahead. But I remember that I felt like I'm, basically done i have proven my point and i'm going to be a great designer and yeah that was cool that was cool after graduating and feeling like you've arrived and you're clearly on your way to becoming the world's leading yeah, designer right? yeah. <laughs> okay so how do you take those first well, how, few steps into the professional after these two weeks i became a little bit more modest of course right you understand, you understand that <laughs> I'm sure. it was just, just two weeks of yes. pleasure and then of course you know there was big problems and i had to study again and like oh i have to save the world i have to try to find a way <laughs> to do this job and you know of course hard work well, how did you do that? What were the first few steps into the professional world for you? I was lucky because the last years of my school, again, what I said, some work was in production. I had won a few prizes. I had work in big exhibitions. So by then I was yeah, a bit known here in this little country. So it's not a lot, but yeah, for that moment, it was mm -hmm. a lot. So my work was presented in the National Design Magazine on the cover and published with like eight or nine pages. So it was really ridiculous in a way. Uh, and so automatically I had quite some work also. Quite a lot of it was, of course, very cultural work. One of the projects was a project for KLM. I was asked to do the business class service, the in-flight service. So I did that and there was three other groups that also were in a two big studios here in the Netherlands and then also Borjek Sipek was asked. So I was the Bruki, the little guy, and then there was Borjek Sipek, which was at the top of his career. And of course these two big studios they won because KLM was super happy to work with a serious company and not with two, two crazy people. And I got to talk with these guys and the studio that won the competition, they asked me, Marcel, don't you want to come work with us? 
And I thought, this is great. You know, I can really do a few years of real practice and not only cultural stuff, but real stuff, right? Real work. And so I said, okay, uh, I'll come work with you if I get paid more than any other designer in the team. I'll be there only for three years. <laughs> I'll pick my own projects and the first project that I want to do is the KLM project and I said yes okay of course <laughs> and so I was there for three years working on the KLM project and so many others and it was an amazing time it was an amazing time I did all kinds of interesting stuff for telecom I did stuff for pregnancy tests I did you know all kinds of stuff and learned a lot from uh, you know fantastic team of really great designers that does sound really really yeah. exciting I'm also very impressed and a little bit jealous of your ballsiness to just demand what you want and then get it <laughs> yeah i had my own studio and my studio was having a lot of work so i had to stop you know for two three years my company which is nothing but yeah, it was my company right i'm like okay I, I will do it but you know basically you're buying my company for a few years so you better you know come up with something sure. if they wouldn't have done it it would be also fine so they were cool with it i was cool with it and we had a wonderful time You've had a long career with many dazzling chapters. Before another? I started there, it was like one, one, one and a half year. And then I worked with them for three years. Then I started a studio together with three others. We shared a space, but basically I started my own studio, which moved then to Amsterdam later. And that's what I'm doing since. But there's all kinds of steps, of course. 2001, then suddenly there's Moy, and we start to do interior design. So there's quite a few big, important steps in my life, of course, like in the life of everybody, right? Uh, you get married, you get a baby, you know, big, big things. Oh, yeah. Tell us about these big, important steps. Let's see, big picture. Coming out of school, working for three years at Landmark, setting up my studio in Rotterdam, then three years later, moving to Amsterdam, then making the Not a Chair, working with Capellini, making the Airborne Snotty Vase, then setting up Moy, doing my first interior project, the big one in Miami. My daughter gets born. Lately, uh, I did a big exhibition of my work in the Stelic Museum in Amsterdam. So yeah, a few highlights. Here and there. Yes. Just a few. <laughs> yeah, just a few. <laughs> when your daughter was born, did that shift your perspective at all? Did that bring anything into focus or did that change your priorities? How did that affect you and your work? No, not at all. I think really, uh, it sounds really awful. I'm an awful father. I'm not. I have a wonderful relationship, an extremely nice daughter, which, you know, I have a great relationship with. But basically... I don't know, I didn't start suddenly to make children's toys or, you know, all that stuff. I didn't suddenly start to work less, you know, really didn't change so much for me. I just felt, you know, of course, more whole and I felt more responsible. But, you know, I always felt responsible for a lot of things. It didn't really make a big difference. I think over time, my daughter became more important when she grew older. Today, I... I think it is more meaningful for me than you know, when she was born. That's maybe weird, but if I'm honestly, that, that's basically it. But you know, I never felt that there is any competition between my family or my work. I've always took the time to be there with my family, and I always took the time for my work. The only one who maybe didn't get time enough sometimes was me. But I'm super okay with that. I have not too many needs on that point. 
Me time. Me time, right? Yeah. Self care. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't need it so much. I mean, if I'm with my family or I'm at work, that's me time, right? I, I don't need nothing else. Well, I feel like if you're really passionate about what you do, a lot of times it doesn't feel different than spending time just doing things you love. It kind of feels like me time. I wouldn't know what to have to do in me time, to be honest. <laughs> I'm happy the way it is. It's, it's, it's busy, but it's beautiful. Yeah. And you've had a lot of successes along the way. You outlined a lot of these really pivotal moments, but did you ever have a moment where there was an incredible challenge or something that just didn't work out that was kind of disappointing? Or can you talk a little bit about anything in your past that might have you know, shaped the next decisions you made? What was, I think, pivotal when I was a young professional was that my girlfriend became very ill. And so for seven years, she's been like super ill to the extent that sometimes in the morning I, I just checked out if she was still alive. So for seven years, that was quite a thing. And so in that period, we together have been studying massively all kinds of alternative ways of life and alternative medication, alternative therapies. And in those periods, I mean, I hope you understand today, new age, we maybe have understood that, you know, it's part of our, our DNA and our lives and who we are. But like 25 years ago, if you as a designer were interested in new age, you're basically an idiot. So it was difficult to find a way to implement more like spiritual ideas or more non-rational ideas, but human ideas into the world of design that was dominated by rationale and logic mm. and concept. So that was very difficult. It's been hard to sometimes find a way to have conversation with like-minded people. And, and I remember that, of course, at some moment you feel strong, another moment you feel weak. And I told my girlfriend, it's so terrible. I can talk to no one. Nobody gets it. And then she says, well, I, I can find no one who I can talk to. And then she said, well, but just imagine there is someone that you could talk to. How would they find you? And that was such a beautiful thing to say. And I was so shocked by the sheer simplicity of what she said but how how beautiful it was and so i thought yeah if, if i can find them you know they can't also find me and so basically i started writing down what i kind of had deducted from this life and uh, i built a bit of a, a strategy and a philosophy around design that was mine and so i wrote the book in 10 chapters on on my thinking and it was great for me. So that was really important. And the book was published in 1996. And the first thing that I made after the book was ready was another chair. And the first thing that was completely like embedding all these points that were in the book was another chair. So it must have been a great thing to put these things in order, to make that blur of thoughts, to make that come alive in 10 insights that were in that book. And still today... Sometimes, sometimes I read that little book. It's a little miracle. It's, it's something that I feel very genuinely proud and happy with that I was able to do that and I had the time to do it. And yeah, and basically someone told me you should scream if you want to be heard. It's something <laughs> that is beautiful. Sometimes you have to scream if you want to be heard. Was that a vulnerable process or a cathartic process? Or I both? think I, I've always been a little bit of a bold guy. So I don't think it's a vulnerable situation to write down what you think. I don't feel 
I make myself very vulnerable to say what I feel. Of course, if you think about everything, which I think as a designer you kind of do, then you live in that blur of questions and cracks in the surface and opportunities and possibilities. If you want to make your own thoughts complete, then at some point you have to decide how you can make it more precise. So you have to at some point write it down. You have to decide, okay, this belongs to this, this belongs to this, this is how I explain myself, this, and this is how I explain someone else that. And so you have to write it down. And that's something that as a designer, basically we're not writers. So it's tough, it's difficult to do it well. But I felt I have to do it. And so, uh, yeah, I did it. Yeah. I'm curious, having done that, has it served you as a sort of roadmap or a reminder of your purpose and your direction at times? Yeah, for sure. It served me i would say in the first place that when it was done it was clear to myself what i thought because again you think about a thousand things but if you can bring it back to 10 now you've got something to work with now you've got something that you can follow now you've got something to do and i remember i thought like oh my god i was always so busy now when i write this down i'm gonna be so busy (laughs) but the beautiful thing was that when i wrote all this down i i looked at the projects i was doing and i was like there's 30 40 percent of the projects that i don't have to do someone else maybe (laughs) but i don't have to do those anymore so it's really nice if you really know what you're doing what you're trying to prove who you're trying to be but of course and now that book is you know it's 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 an old book so i don't use it for that anymore it's just fun for me to read it back and see how these 10 insights have have each of them has kind of grown out to be more mature more deep more research more proven so it's beautiful so it's still important to me but we're happily further developed today we're taking a quick break but we'll be right back with more marcel in a few moments Hey, clever listeners, it's Jamie. I bet you guys are not the kind of people who tend to give generic, trendy, or off-the-rack type gifts, am I right? If you're like me and Amy, you're always on the hunt for ways to personalize gifts so that they have more meaning and thoughtfulness. So you might be interested to learn about Canvas Pop. Canvas Pop allows you to turn any photograph into gorgeous canvas art or a custom photo print. So yeah, that includes family portraits and pet portraits, of course, but more than that, it includes any image you can possibly dream up. So you can create your own originals in any media, as long as you can turn it into an image, then you can turn it into the ultimate personalized gift. The ordering process is super easy, includes a free proof before printing and assistance with sizing and framing options. The museum quality canvases are made in America and hand stretched by expert craftspeople. And they're offering a 100% love guarantee. So if you don't love it, they'll fix it. So you do. The best part is you guys, clever listeners can get a 50% discount on a $100 order by using the code CLEVER50 at canvaspop.com. You've really made an illustrious catalog of work in the product and furniture and interiors categories. But recently, I think you told me you went and got an MBA. And I know you've been city hopping a bit, living for a stint in San Francisco and Milan. And I'm wondering... What's going on with current Marcel? You seem like you're on a new chapter of exploration. 
Well, I lived all my life in Amsterdam. I've always traveled a lot, like half of my time. But still, I live in Amsterdam. And I consider myself an Amsterdam, which is great. And I love the city. And I don't want to ever move, move, move. But I also, also felt like it's a bit strange that if I wouldn't have become a designer or I wouldn't have had my studio, I probably would have lived for two years in New York and one year in London. And, and maybe that's all an illusion, but that's an illusion. It makes me happy, so I have it. And so <laughs> that would have been good for me. It's good for people, I think, to travel. And so I have never done really living somewhere else. And I thought, like, maybe if I organize myself well, and this is like 10 years ago, maybe later I, I can start doing this. And because I, now it was difficult because my studio is not organized for me not to be there. My daughter is not old enough for me to be away and I was doing quite a few real estate projects in Amsterdam which needed my presence and so I thought like I'm going to organize that something like three four years ago I felt you know it's time to do this and so I thought to myself we're going to do five years five cities more or less right it's just a bit of an idea it's a concept a concept that can be uh, you know changed so ultimately what I did in 2014 I did my uh, MBA at uh, NCA in uh, Fontainebleau near Paris an amazing experience that was so vital for me you know to work with such different type of people on such different type of knowledge and such different type of opportunities it was amazing then the year after having my MBA I thought let's go to San Francisco let's work with uh, venture capital firms let's work with uh, startups and so I did I, I became a uh, advisors to venture capital firms and I worked together with some startups and then after I went to Milano I was there for I have wasted a lot of time and money on foundations that don't match me and now I can't even swatch in store anymore thankfully I found the Il Maquillage Power Match quiz it literally found my perfect foundation shade in seconds Plus, with Try Before You Buy, I was even sent my full-size match to try for free for 14 days. But I'm definitely keeping this. Take the quiz at ilmakiage.com slash quiz. That's I-L-M-A-K-I-A-G-E dot com slash quiz. Support for Clever comes from Master and Dynamic. We know you love great design and care about quality audio. So we know you will love Master and Dynamics headphones and earphones. Brilliant sound and design motivates everything they do. So Master and Dynamic products are the perfect gift for the music and design obsessed alike. And after you see the craftsmanship and premium materials, we know you'll want to get a pair for yourself too. Whether you're looking for luxurious and comfortable over-ear headphones, portable and power-packed true wireless earphones, or an immersive wireless speaker, Master and Dynamic has what you need to upgrade your listening experience. Hear your favorite podcast, clever, obviously, and your favorite songs in a whole new way. Visit masterdynamic.com and use the code CLEVER for 10% off your new pair of headphones. Terms and conditions apply. That's masterdynamic.com. a lot that year and then this year I'm a lot in Budapest in Amsterdam so I take a little bit of a, a leap year and then next year I might go to Doha. Let's talk about your creative process because that's a pretty magical mind under that mop of, of gray hair. How does it go down? So inspiration people think it comes from traveling or from reading books or so but inspiration according to me sits inside 
Inspiration is the burning fire that drives everything you are, that drives everything you think. It is basically the big question of your life. What do you do here? What's important? How do you do that? How can I make a design topology that's more humanistic, that's more romantic, that's less technocratic, that is more durable and that generates psychological sustainability in the world? So that is a question. That is the purpose of everything I am. That is what I'm going to prove. That's what I'm going to do. And so everything I see, everything I read, everything I hear, everything I smell, everything that comes my way is selected on this magnetic question. That, that, that question is a big, big, big magnet. And if anything passes by that can be meaningful in any way, on that subject to be a little bit of a part of an answer of that subject it will stick on my brain and will not leave ah so the inspiration is that question the answers come from outside and they come from any possible direction of course sometimes you know, crazy shit happens in it and still is meaningful to a thought you never know but the inspiration is inside that's a question that is with me for 25 years, and it hardly changed. Are there any conditions you can create for yourself that are conducive to synthesizing all of that stimuli? No, the only thing that I have to do is not sleep. Oh. I hardly have a good idea when I sleep. So not sleeping is a good thing. Oh, interesting. I am way less productive when I'm not sleeping. <laughs> Let's explain it this way. If you tie me on a chair, you blindfold me in the dark, I'll be inspired. My inspiration comes from inside. There's always, you know, I'm active. And I'm telling myself this also to make sure that there will never be a situation that I feel I cannot be creative. Because I mm -hmm. don't accept any rules for creativity. It will be there. Mm. Because I demand it to be there. I'm not going to be in a position that, oh, I can't travel, so I can't work. There's nothing nice to read. I have no ideas. Fuck that. <laughs> There's no rules for creativity. I will find the answers on my questions. I will. Nothing can stop that. Follow-up question. If you're this ever-flowing fountain of ideas, what's your editing process like? I mean, are all these ideas worthy or do you have to toss them out? And if so, what's your criteria? I make huge amount of irrelevant and unimportant things. <laughs> and the good thing is that sometimes that's something I see myself. Sometimes my clients or my friends, they hold me back and say, like, Marcel, are you crazy? Or this is not worthwhile. And sometimes, you know, nobody sees it and the market thinks like, what was this guy sniffing? I don't know. <laughs> of course, we have all these layers of people and systems to find out what are the best things. And, you know, of course, a big part of that selection process is my own hunch, my own experience and my own interest in things. But, you know, sometimes you feel that your clients hold you back and sometimes super frustrating. But I, I remember myself, I work with people I respect. I work with people I trust have the best interest in this project. So if they want to stop it, they might know something or feel something that I don't. I think there's always a way to make all the parties in the program excited, happy, and cooperative. There's always a way. 
I was going to ask you about that because clients are clearly coming to you because you've created this brand and you have this wonderful mind that creates playful and surprising things. But how are you able to communicate that like in a client meeting and translate all of those thoughts into something that the client can kind of understand? We do work and it's visible. So people come our way and that's cool. And we try to really connect to the nicest ones and the most friendly people because we like to work with friendly people generous and friendly people and so then we start listening we start to listen to people because if if we work with people that we respect then i'm not going to tell them what to do i'm going to ask them what what are we going to do basically if i think about what we do in general if i make an object i feel that it's my baby right so and of Mm -hmm. course if it's my baby i'm the mother and and the client my client is the father and so obviously to to make good babies you you have to make sure that you find a beautiful father because you can't make a beautiful child with an ugly father <laughs> uh, you can't make an intelligent child with a dumb father so you find good fathers now if you have that father you have to make sure that he gets a chance to put his genetic information his like his quality his power his superpowers he has to be able to put that in that project so you want to work together i mean you want to make sure also that the father at the end of the line when the baby is out that the father recognizes the child as his otherwise he doesn't take care of it so all that makes sure that if you listen and if you are with a client together on a project of course if you show a drawing he recognized that drawing from the conversation you had before. So it becomes more easy to explain what you want to do. Uh, And it's not just like only a big surprise. It's a surprise, but it's also a recognition. People see, ah, yes, yes, that's really, uh, we we talked about that. And now I see it real. It's different than I thought, but it's the thing, right? So you want to make sure that you have a positive working relationship with respect to get the best of both worlds or all worlds, I say that way, into the project. I love that analogy because so often when babies are born, you can recognize both parents and the baby, but they never look like what you would imagine a hybrid of those two individuals would look like. So that element of the father being able to recognize itself so that he can take care of the project is is a really it's super important. It's, it's super, super important. important. Yeah. I hear stories of designers that, you know, they did design a chair for company X and then the company X doesn't want it. And they go with the same drawing to company Y. And I don't know, I've tried it once or twice. It never works. And I don't want it to work. It, it, it's ridiculous if it could work. It's like being a cuckoo. You put the egg in someone else's nest. It's not what I am. I'm a nest builder. I build <laughs> okay. nests. <laughs> okay. I build nests, yeah. Yeah, there might be cuckoo in my nest. Yeah. That, <laughs> okay, so you've had a pretty public life. I mean, you're on the map as a designer. You've done a lot of interviews, a lot of public speaking, a lot of appearances. Do you think the general public's perception of you is who you are? And often designers don't have a chance to really talk about much more than their last project in media opportunities. So I want to know if there's something that you think the people would be surprised to learn about you? Well, I'm sure there's a huge amount of things they don't know. And whatever I do or say, the amount of talk that goes around the world is just like incredible. And it could be funny if it wasn't so dramatic sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) 
I don't know. I don't know exactly what people think. It just the other day I was on a website, and it's it's I don't know some celebrity website. Uh, you put a name in, and then you get all kinds of information about that guy, which is given by people who read those things. And it turned out that. 40% of the people think I'm bisexual. So that, for instance, is something that people think, and I know it's not true. <laughs> I did some experimentations, but, you know, I really have no talent on the subject. So, yeah, people <laughs> think things. I don't know. They, they come up with ideas. I mean, whatever. Uh, I, I, I think I'm, I'm very open. I, there's very little I, I hide. I, I don't... A lot of people need a lot of privacy. I don't. There's really not so much that, you know, that I want to hide in my life. I mean, I, I have a fun life. You know, if you make a photo while I have fun, uh, I yeah, just <laughs> enjoy the ride. It's my life. I'm not difficult to people. I'm a friendly person. So I don't know. I don't have so much uh, privacy issues. And I think I'm pretty open in, in what I think and, and what I feel. And so basically... Theoretically, people could really understand who I am, but I think at the end, what they really think about me, I I don't know. <laughs> but but you might have an idea. What do people think about me? <laughs> I mean, if I ask it, of course, I don't get the real answers. You you might have asked it, and you might have gotten an answer. You know, that's an interesting question. I think that you definitely give off kind of a swagger and a charisma that I think intimidates people and excites people. So then the shallow, simple people will come to really shallow, simple conclusions about you. And the more thoughtful people will investigate your work and think about your humor and the way that you're willing to challenge things. I'll tell you something else. The really thoughtful people uh-huh. in design in design are the most difficult ones because the people who think about design they have an opinion about how things should be. And so they become design fundamentalists because they think that now, because they know how things should be done, they think that therefore they know how I should do my work, Uh, which of course is ridiculous. Ridiculous. Uh, It's it's design fundamentalism, right? I mean, we don't want it in the politics, but in design, it's it's the one treatment that we give each other. It's, it's Which really, is it's counterproductive to the whole design process. I, the to, whole point of design is yes. that we have different opinions <laughs> and that we can excite each other with a new idea. Yes. Instead, instead, the people who really think they know design, they have their own idea and they think everybody should follow that principle, which is ridiculous. Design fundamentalism is a big thing. We should write a book about it. It would be so mm. much fun. It would be a very <laughs> cynical book, I think. Which maybe I, I, I therefore shouldn't make. If, if you think about what people think about things, it's really dominated by what they think for themselves. They think, I want to do design this way, or I think this is the right way. And then obviously, if someone else doesn't do that, or takes more liberties, then basically that is a whore or it is something that has no mentality or spine and is doing the wrong things, works for the wrong people, blah, blah. It's a, it's an interesting subject. Uh, we don't have to talk about this in length because it's really not a nice subject, but it's uh, maybe something you could study and uh, let me know what you think. Haters going to hate, right? <laughs> no, 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 no. Don't, don't make it so small. It's bigger. Okay. It's more ubiquitous than a few people that do hate other people it's it's really 
see, we we all think that you know this design stuff. It's so important, so we think about it, or, or we don't. Or we take the thought from someone else, and we make it ours. We work with it day and night, and then obviously, it must be right. And if it's right, then other people must do the same. And if they don't, they're basically wrong. So it is something that all of us have if we are not very careful. Yes, I see what you're saying. It's not a few people. It's most of us. I have to fight it myself. I see work and I'm like, hmm. And I really try to be straightforward and think, okay, this is not my work. This doesn't have to follow my rules. Let's look at it again. And I'm Mm -hmm. trying. It's very easy to be a fundamentalist because you don't have to doubt your life, but it's healthy to doubt. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that the idea of design fundamentalist, I mean, that kind of crosses over to anything, right? Into your life and how you view the world. Absolutely. Okay, so we talked about the fact that you don't have me time, but do you derive fulfillment from anything you do or anything outside of work? Uh... <laughs> Do you have a hobby? <laughs> I've got great friends, and uh, I, I've got uh, my family, and I've got I've got a little boat here in the canal, which in the summer is nice. And uh, no, a very simple man, a very simple guy. I don't have strange hobbies now, not at all. In fact, <laughs> I do nothing. I read books. I read books. I read books. Uh, yeah, I read. Wait, do you read like fiction or nonfiction or is it only design books? Only nonfiction. Nonfiction. I read stuff about the brain, about psychology and uh, uh, nanostructures, finance, whatever. (laughs) Everything I don't know. And that's a lot. (laughs) You like to keep learning. It also sounds like human connection is something that you like to. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. the key we all do the key, yeah. the key to happiness right yeah i think so alone happiness mm, no yeah isolation Not really. no good all right <laughs> back to your studio what's the future of your studio what's exciting what are you what would you love to do or where would you love for it to go well, uh, we have a fantastic studio. We're about 50 people. And uh, and the studio is, yeah, it's a very special place. We we started doing product design. We started now to do interior design for a few years. The, the, see, the philosophy of my work, things are always whole. They're always like, you have to look at them from all sides. If, if I make a cup, I don't care about the ceramic. I care about everything. And so basically, we look at projects from from all kinds of ways everything becomes an opera everything has thousand things to be decided on and so the teams are very multidisciplinary and that's something that's so beautiful because you get uh, all these all these specialists that work together in in such a wonderful way and for special projects sometimes we we take aboard other people that have a crazy specialism it could be a poet could be psychologists could be whatever a police guy we find people and we get them into the studio to make our 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 projects vital and to get knowledge that otherwise you wouldn't have we have photographers in us we have graphic designers we have virtual designers we have all, all these kind of people and they they work together i think that's something that is going to shape the result of our projects uh, in, in the future you see also that you know where we used to do a chair 
for a company today, we design a collection and we explain exactly how to present it. We work together with the companies on, on how to PR it and to photograph it and how to put it in the stores and basically how tomorrow to be a more interesting company. And that's that's cool. I like to learn. I'm born to learn. I'm uh, <laughs> bored fast. And so I really love to, to find areas that uh, I, I don't know how to do it. And, and so I find people around me that, that, that help us create and that help me learn. And so the studio is a place of, of creative superheroes. And it's wonderful to lead them to do something that we're all going to be happy and proud of. So speaking of the studio and all the superheroes, you've stated your mission is here to create an environment of love, live with passion and make our most exciting dreams come true. Yeah, that's a mission. Uh, that's a mission. I, I wrote down probably like 22 years ago. It's it's really fun. That, and I've, I, sometimes I, I put the comma different, but it go, and then it goes back. It's not, nothing has ever changed. That's a grand mission. And it's one that feels very celestial and open-ended. And so I wonder if you can define like personally what your most exciting dream is that has yet to come true. Can you put any descriptors to that? Uh, big picture. I mean, the small picture. I want to do so many wonderful projects and make little, little, little steps. I think the world is uh, dominated by the thought that the big steps are so important. I just, I just love the small steps. I love, love, love little victories. I can have 15 on a day and I love that. And I, I really think that we were over committed to the big steps because you know, the big steps really cannot happen without small steps. So Yes, what I really want for the future of my life and my studio, I want us to do a huge amount of little victories, a huge amount of little victories, and enjoy all of them because that is what's going to make us happy. It's nice if in five years' time we did something, but basically, if it means that for the five years in between, we just work hard and just like hope it's happening, I'd rather have 15,000 little victories. Having said that, two things that really I'm bound to do, I'm really want to do it i want to do an opera in in the met uh, in new york i really want to to take that universe and just make it completely kind of take over the experience that people have we make products we make interiors and in, in an interior you basically invite people to feel things to experience things but in an opera now it's like you kind of have them completely i mean you there's no, they cannot escape anymore and so they're on that train with me and i'm just gonna you know give them that unique everlasting memory of an experience that is just just like yeah once in a lifetime so that is something i really 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 want to do and i want to do it once only so i'm going to do one opera and it's going to be in the met so you can't buy tickets yet but you know be prepared it's going to happen and then the other thing i want to do is i want to do a big grand mosque in the middle east it is a Super interesting as a creative project. I think more than that, I think the design is political activity and it has a, a huge influence on, on what people think in the world. It is a force for good and it's important that through design we make connections through cultures and also especially where you know it is important to show that you know people 
can work together and can respect each other. And so therefore, I think it would be amazing if the right people in the Middle East trust me to make them a great mosque. And if then I can make them the most amazing mosque ever, that is truly contemporary, but it's truly a celebration of their wonderful culture. And that's something I really want to do. And I started researching and I'm, that's a project I kind of started with uh, studying. Uh, I do a lot of studies for mosques. But uh, also that's going to take a while. It's going to be at least 10 years from now that, you know, maybe I can start because it's a, it's, it's a new language that I have to study, but I'm on that. Wow. I'm excited for both of those. <laughs> what do you have coming up that our listeners should take note of and, and be on the lookout for? Uh, tonight I'm going to have dinner with friends. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, are we all invited? <laughs> uh, yeah, if you come over, if you're more than happy to, to do the espresso at the end of the night. Uh, what we should know now, I mean, we are uh, opening very soon a hotel in Doha, which is an amazing hotel. It's a Mondrian <laughs> hotel. It's a sister of the Mondrian that we did in Miami, but it's real Doha. That's a big thing uh, for, for me and my studio. Of course, there's um, the fair in Milano coming up, and we all know what that means, right, Amy? Yes. That, that's going to be great fun. And this year, we're going to show you know, a lot of cool stuff, a lot of new things. With Moy, we have a very special presentation this year. Uh, even for people who have been there year on year, they're going to be happily surprised to see us in a new way. Um, yeah, super interesting stuff. I hope that people visit us also in the real, in, in our New York showroom. Everybody's always welcome and uh, we're happy to share what we do there. I want to thank you for being so candid and sharing your personal vision for changing the world with us. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Take care, Marcel. Hope to see you soon. I want to be inside of his brain. I love that he talked about inspiration being something that's inside of him that he can channel. He said he makes a lot of work, you know, and sometimes he shows it to people and they're like, no, no, you shouldn't do that. And then some people are like, yes, this is an amazing idea. So I think it's really important to look at inspiration as something that comes from actually making things or writing things down or just trying all kinds of things. It's more about the amount of work and being prolific and then finding something within all of that that works rather than just like sitting around waiting for like, you know, the sunset to inspire you to make something. Like you can't go out in search of an epiphany, right? Right. But I I think it's really important that he said it's something inside because so many people think that inspiration is an external thing that they have to find from somewhere as opposed to a nourishing of your internal world with external stimuli and I think it's a parallel to self-worth people sometimes look for their self-worth in external validation and it's ultimately a recipe for failure and emotional instability and energetic meltdowns Sometimes external validation can nourish your self-worth, but your self-worth comes from within and you're in charge of feeding it with the types of things that you seek out and the way that you take care of it. And inspiration is the same way. You're in charge of feeding it and taking care of it, but it's inside already. You just have to like maintain the apparatus. Right. (laughs) I also loved, loved, loved the way he talked about 
A project is a baby, which we can all relate to, right? When we give our creative selves over to a project, it really is like birthing a baby. And I didn't get a chance to ask him about postpartum because that I have a legit question about whether he feels the up and down of, mm. of giving birth to a project. But this two-parent situation, these two genetic inputs that have to happen to create this this project and absolutely the father has to recognize himself in this baby or else he won't feel compelled to take care of it and that idea of like the the hopeful designer going around with this portfolio full of ideas client after client saying you know don't you want to make my project you can see now how that doesn't work it has to start with this communion of two genetic identities and then it has to be born from that yeah, and I think that the brands, you know, they come to him for something in particular. They don't come to him because he designed a chair and they want to make it. They come to him because of his brain um, and the creativity and the studio's message that they put out there. So, you know, designers not only need to be able to make or design beautiful things, but they also need to have a mission and a philosophy. And I love that he wrote that down like right away in the beginning so that people kind of know exactly who he is and what he stands for and, and what he wants his studio to, to make and, and how, how he wants them to be presented. Okay, one last thing I think that was really awesome about this, and I'm gonna remind myself to practice this, the small victories. Mm. A gazillion small victories in your lifetime, I think, is ultimately a more enjoyable life than, you know, years and years of <laughs> misery and hard labor <laughs> of for, course. for like the one big victory, right? Which we all know doesn't have as big of an impact as we think it does. You can't live forever off like one accomplishment. So celebrating the small victories, I think, is exactly what keeps your engine fired up to keep doing more. Absolutely. Hey, thanks for listening. Before we wrap this up, we have some exciting news. We're producing our first sponsored episode in collaboration with Interface, and we can't wait to share it with you. It's one of our favorite topics, the changing workplace. We're going to talk to two people in the commercial design and contract industry about how the way we work is affecting design and how the design industry is responding to these changes. Plus, it's all about positivity. So earmark this and stay tuned. And subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Go to cleverpodcast.com to sign up for our newsletter, read the show notes, and see images of Marcel's work. Connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Clever Podcast. We totally love hearing from you. This episode of Clever was edited by Ty Navaris with music by L1011. Hi, I'm Neil Innes. And I'm Andres Bartos from Passport. Each week, we travel to a new place to tell you enlightening, smart, and just plain incredible stories which have shaped our destination. We want you to experience the world with us. And so does this week's sponsor, Booking.com. And the best news is they're about to have the biggest sale of the year where you can save 30% or more. This is a limited offer, so make sure you book before the 1st of December 2020 to travel anytime before the end 
end of 2021. Find amazing deals now at booking.com forward slash Black Friday to come and travel with us.